Hi friends, it's Abby Feeder, Certified Life and Fertility Coach, and you're listening to The Fertility Chick. This show is all about the road to parenthood, which is never the same for everyone, and our guests' professional success along the way. Today we have an incredible psychologist with us, Dr. Ivy Love, who practices here in California. Ivy is not only a psychologist, but a hypnotherapist, a trained deaf midwife, a grief coach, a life coach, and a mother of four. She talks to us about becoming a widow and having a baby loss all before the age of 25. She'd also lost her best friend and her father by suicide in high school. There's a lot to process in this episode, and it is so rich and full of nuggets. I cannot wait for you to hear it. Here's Dr. Ivy. Hi, Dr. Ivy. Hi, Abby. It's so nice to have you here. Um, it's such a pleasure. Thank you. And I see you're in your Zen office, which I've stepped foot into, and it is so cozy and warm, much like you are. Thank you. Thank yes. you very much. So yeah, I'm we, a crystal like lover. So I have a lot of crystals in here. I'm holding my rose quartz moon right now. Oh, as beautiful. Speak. Yes. <laughs> it was the one I was called to. So you're a psychologist here in Los Angeles. You're local to Los Angeles. Um, And I, long before we met, I had heard about you through various friends who came to you when they experienced a loss. Namely, I think of one particular friend who I had become very close with when she had a loss at seven months pregnant. And so I sort of knew you peripherally as the loss psychologist. And now that I know you better and know a little bit about your story, It actually all makes a lot of sense. So I'd love to start there. If you can just tell us how you ended up sort of specializing in grief and loss and where from your own personal story it came from. All right. (laughs) Just start with something light and easy, you know? (laughs) Exactly. I was going to say like, well, I've I've learned about death and grief from a very young age Mm -hmm. and it's not a stranger to me. And it's something that has organically unfolded um, in my life, uh, starting with the suicide of my father when I was 15 years old, mm. he had bipolar disorder, refused psychiatric medications and self-medicated. And, um, it was quite, um, chaotic in my home. So I've, I've, I've had that experience, which only helps, of course, inform all my work that I do as a psychologist and as I've grown in my, my own professional field, but also just as a person um, and, and what that can bring into sessions with my patients. The following year, my best friend hung herself in her closet. Oh my gosh. And I often feel guilty because I wonder if my father's suicide kind of put that in her head, that that was a way for her to leave. Mm. I believe she became pregnant and didn't want to tell her father. And out of the shame of that, she was all set to go to UCSB in the fall and killed herself over the summer. Oh my God. So I didn't even believe her father on the phone. I called her best friend and I'm like, this is real. Like I couldn't, you know, so much trauma, right? So much sudden loss. And then a few years later, I, at 24 years old, got married uh, to the love of my life. And he died two months later in a car accident. At that point, I had been in graphic design and fashion, did PR for George Armani Corporate, 
on Rodeo Drive, to, then went to Warner Brothers, worked for David Wolper. And when Michael died, I, and I also had a pregnancy loss with Michael. So, you know, add another layer. <laughs> Jeez. I just said, I got to go back to school. I want to find order in the chaos. I need, I need a, a compass of, of what is healthy and unhealthy. And um, I needed some grounding and, and some understanding of not only just us as human beings, but the complexity of, of our subconscious and our conscious and what trauma does to the brain. And we know that it actually can... Sh- reshape parts of your brain briefly or long or long-term even depending on you know who you are as a person and your temperament and personality and um I just uh was called to go back so mm-hmm. I had gone to FITM originally which is a two-year school here in Los Angeles uh and then was accepted at Scripps um which is a wonderful wonderful school all women school and uh and then on to grad school and straight into a doctorate. And I was able to marry my artistic side by doing um, a documentary film on sudden loss and what it is to be a young widow. I didn't know that. What's the name of that movie? It's a short film uh, as a, my dissertation. So got it, it, was, got it was it. never like out there. Put out there oh, but, I still want to um, watch it. Maybe you'll show it to me one day. I will have to get it, probably get it transferred off of like beta. VHS, yeah. Whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. This big, thick, you know. But yes, it was, um, it was great. I flew across the country and interviewed people. So anyway, that's how, that was kind of my introduction. Into- Wait, I already have like a million questions because I oh. want to know a couple things. Sure. Just in terms of who you are as a human. When your father passed, what was it like in your home? Did you have siblings? And you grew up in California, in LA, right? Yeah, I grew up in Malibu. In Malibu. Very idyllic, beautiful place, obviously, to grow up. Not um, what it is today, which is, it doesn't look the same at all. But beautiful area to grow up. And, but a bit isolated. I was uh, um, also ostracized from my friendships after my father died of suicide because... Mm. My girlfriend's families, you know, with this shame and stigma around suicide, didn't really want their daughters coming over my house anymore. Wow. So I also know what it is to be, um, you know, have prejudice against you for Mm -hmm. mental health issues Mm -hmm. um, or someone having mental health issues in your family. I have a younger brother, 18 months younger, and my mother is still living out of the state right now. Uh, but I also had a mom who wasn't stable. Mm. She tried to kill herself a year before my father, but I think it was more, it was aspirin. So I think it was more of like a cry for help, not like an actual, like she really wanted it to. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, let's just put it this way. There's a lot of dysfunction in many families. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and we don't all get the the picture perfect family that we all hope for. And so it's a bit fractured for me. So I can also help people with daughters of narcissistic mothers, for example. And I can help people with who have had, unfortunately, suicide touch their family in some way or what it is to watch my mom. My dad was only 36 when he died. So uh, watching my mom be a young widow, right? And just the checkout. And then the kid being a kid in high school. 
and feeling like uh, I needed, I switched schools uh, because I kind of didn't want to go back to the same uh, Santa Monica High School um, at the time. Mm-hmm. It was just a very chaotic experience. And you're 15, so very impressionable. Was therapy used to help you guys at all through that time? Had you already been through some kind of therapy or was it sort of a new thing? Yeah, a new no, idea? we, had. we mm-hmm. had been some fa- some family therapy. And my father was so good at, he was brilliant. That was, it worked against him here because he would outsmart the doctors or make everything seem better than it was. Or my brother and I were scared to speak up, right? Mm. So I didn't grow up in like the most compassionate, loving family figuring the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also a survivor of sexual abuse by my father. Mm. So there were a lot of dynamics in that household that didn't, I did not find my voice. So it's interesting. I'm a psychologist, right? <laughs> I talk, I talk, 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 talk. And I learned the language of emotion. A lot of parents don't teach their children the language of emotion. Uh, we learn that later. We learn how to follow the rules the right and wrong. Um, you get very little choice as kids. You maybe get to choose what you get for dinner or lunch and what to, you maybe you get to wear unless you're in private school and then you have to wear a uniform. But as children, we really don't get a lot of choice and we're not really listened to. So my background, I should back up a little bit even more for you, Abby, is in grad school, I specialized in child development and parenting. Mm. That was my first track. Um, and so I would help a lot of um, families and doing a lot of family therapy and children therapy, a lot of child therapy as well. And really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed that. It wasn't until I'm kind of jumping around a bit, but okay. as my practice moved on that I started getting women with miscarriages or fertility issues or even postpartum, right? So when I started having my own children, so I did remarry at 30 waited till my dissertation was done to have children. <laughs> and uh, I, I was fortunate enough to get pregnant with twins without help. And whoa, right? So there you go. Mm. Then I had terrible postpartum. I, mm. I had mean, awful postpartum. And at the time, there wasn't really a lot of awareness like there is now around that and and not having a very good mother figure. So for your listeners, by the way, most women who have postpartum, and yes, it's multi-layered. So it, there are thing, other things in your life that can happen. But for about 90% of women, 95% of women who have postpartum, it's because there was misattunement with their own mothers. Mm. And that I had in spades. So I didn't know that. That's yeah. just from research that's been done? Yep. And just doing this 25 plus years, wow. you know. I'm not going to give my age away too much, but... <laughs> but you are 25. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to watch um, how mothers can come in and just invalidate or create a situation where the woman feels regressed and doesn't trust her own mothering instincts. Or this is how I did it, you know, honey. And so you should do it the same way. Mm-hmm. And... And it doesn't feel like it's in alignment with how you want to be a mom. And then wow. it's it, so then there's this, this psychological, you already feel defeated as it is with the sleep deprivation. And if you choose to breastfeed, like that whole 
I mean, learning curve, right? On its own. So yeah, I had pneumonia four months after my twins were born, uh, just from sleep deprivation, just being so exhausted and wanting to be the mother that didn't put the babies on a sleep schedule and didn't, you know, till I realized that was working against me. And um, so you'd feed one baby when fell asleep and the other one woke up and, you know, so it was a never ending cycle. Mm. But anyway, back to my practice. So yeah, getting women in with postpartum and miscarriage and my own postpartum. And so it just naturally progressed into this area of, of, of women's health and working more full spectrum for women's health and helping women through transitions to motherhood, um, running mommy and me classes at what was then the pump station, um, being on the board of something called Reflective Parenting, the Reflecting Parenting Center. I don't have my resume in front of me, but <laughs> I know in, I, it's extensive. I can. I wrote I can articles say. for parenting magazines. I was, you know, speaking at schools on bullying and how to help children with their self esteem. Um, you know, so I was very in, ensconced in schools and parenting and pediatricians and that kind of world. And then with the with the postpartum came. Oh, okay. This is something that really needs attention, and needing to go on, I think Zoloft and see if that would help me. And realizing that I wasn't crazy, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but I really felt thought I ruined my life with the twins. Mm -hmm. I looking at them, just brought them home from the hospital, holding my hands on my head, and just going, "Did I just ruin my life? What did I just do?" And I had ended up with a cesarean with the twins and I wanted to birth them naturally. That's a whole nother story. So I feel like I had a traumatic birth on top of everything. Went on to have two more children and they were V-backs. Mm. I was grateful to my doctor for allowing me to have two births vaginally, but also postpartum. Mm. With all and of them. All of them, different types of postpartum. And there are different types. And some people don't realize that. There's the one that shows up depressive. There's one that shows OCD, intrusive thoughts. Especially with my last one, the intrusive thoughts were like, there's a book that Karen Kleiman, I believe, uh, um, Dropping the Baby and Other Scary Thoughts. It's a great book yeah. for women. And I just want to point out that the difference between psychosis and scary thoughts is that you know the scary thought is something you would never do and you're horrified that you're having that thought. Mm -hmm. Psychosis is believing your thoughts and believing and, act and acting on them. Mm -hmm. So there is a difference. And by the way, 10% roughly of men get postpartum. So one out of 10, I should say. So, and I have diagnosed postpartum in men. Is so, there any way to treat it? Yeah, Lexapro. <laughs> yeah, Lexapro. Right. Of course, and they came up with a quick answer to that if the man was suffering. And education. Yeah. So uh, then it just evolved into helping women with their losses and their fertility and just getting really versed in fertility and now working a lot with the, the REs, the reproductive endocrinologists in our area and uh, OBGYNs, obviously, and then having medical staff privileges at St. John's hospital which helps me go in and help the labor and delivery nurses who've been mm -hmm. traumatized with what they've seen so doing a lot of trauma work too is a specialty of mine 
Do you feel like you've done your trauma work or you feel like it's a... Absolutely. And it's ongoing. Yeah. <laughs> Always. Of, yeah. Ongoing. Recently got certified in hypnosis, uh, hypnotherapy specifically. And I'm, that subconscious is, is a quagmire of <laughs> things that you just, you can't believe still comes up. So while you're learning um, how to do hypnotherapy, you're doing your own hypnotherapy. And I've done that anyway, but it's still... Still so fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's still still eye-opening. And one session of hypnotherapy really is like having five sessions of talk therapy. Mm. That's how powerful it is and how deep you go. And when you wake up from hypnotherapy, like if you were to do it on me, and what is my consciousness like afterwards? Because in some ways I think, oh my God, five therapy sessions in one hypnotherapy, sign me up. Like weekly, I'll be cured. Right. Right. right? But Am I conscious? Am I aware afterwards of what might have transformed in there? Or is it sort of a longer term realization process? So let me demystify this a bit. Hypnotherapy is not a parlor trick where you see... (laughs) Where you you like TikTok on a... No TikTok, no like, you know, how people do ridiculous things and they wake up and don't remember doing them. You are fully participating in the session. You have to be willing to participate and allow your body to relax and be open to suggestion and to go into a theta-what brainwave state, which is um, where everything slows down in the brain. It's it's similar, actually, it's the same state you want to reach when you meditate. Mm. Okay. Theta. So working in the theta state allows you to work with the subconscious. And allow memories to come forward that you may or may not remember. Or you come in for one thing and you might be more protective, right? It might be like, well, I've got writer's block or mm-hmm. I don't know. I I, I, I want to work on betrayal or I want to work on, I don't know, why I can't get my to-do list done. But as you bring someone into hypnosis or hypnotherapy and you get them in that theta state, Suddenly, it's not about the presenting you know, sentence that they really wanted. All of a sudden, something else will pop up. Now, there is a lot of talk or there were, there was a lot of talk, I think, in the 90s about false memories, mm. especially around sexual abuse. But there's some really good articles out there on that and why people were trying to debunk it as something that wasn't useful in court. This is not that. This is, you are fully participant. You absolutely remember these things as your subjective experience as real and what it brings up for you emotionally. And how do we heal that, that wound that never got healed? So doing this inner child work is real. It's, it's a real thing. Your foundation before the age of six emotionally is hardwired in the subconscious. And really informs how you think, behave, make choices and decisions, judgments, criticism, whatever, as you age. Mm. So you, you're bringing this little injured child with you as you age that hasn't been attended to, hasn't been listened to, hasn't had that reflective experience of empathy and compassion and being held and cared for but being dismissed, minimized, or unheard. And you need to heal that inner part of yourself 
in order to bring yourself into the present as a fully formed human. A lot of the things that we see, or I see, I should say, anyway, in my work is often trauma related or unresolved things from childhood. In the psychiatry world, in the medical field, they're so quick to check boxes and put you in a box. They want to label you. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, you're bipolar, you're depressed, you're borderline, you're this, you're that. Sure, maybe you are. On the other, on the flip side, you could also be a sum of your experiences. And that is why you have a hard time with interpersonal relationships or you argue more than you don't, or you can't seem to form long lasting friendships mm-hmm. or your intimate relationships tend to fall apart and you feel like you're alone. Mm-hmm. You know, so we want to really do a deep dive into what is creating your present circumstances and keep creating this feeling inside of you. It's all about feeling, not thinking. Your brain is not your friend. It is not your friend. <laughs> I really want to reiterate that. Your thoughts are just thoughts until they become beliefs. And when they become beliefs, that's when you do act from a, a feeling state that does not serve you. Mm-hmm. Often, I'm talking about thoughts that don't serve you. And how do we need to untangle that and break it down so that you can go back and have that, that corrective experience and hold yourself and say, I've got you and love yourself more and hold yourself in that type of, Oh, this with such tenderness and love that you didn't get as a child mm. and bring it into the, into the now. And do you feel like, the difference between hypnotherapy and psychology then or or going into a therapy session is just getting to that theta state allows it to come to the surface more quickly? Well, I heard two questions in that. Okay. So I think having your therapy sessions are very helpful because yeah, you, in the therapy session, uh, the therapist is listening for themes, listening for, um, what's troubling you, what, um, feeling state you, you, you tend to, uh, either repeat or bring in and to help you reflect on why that might be right. So help you to find the answers when you go into hypnotherapy, it probably makes you more comfortable with the person doing the hypnotherapy because you've done some therapy work already Mm. rather than a fresh new person walking off the street going straight into a hypnotherapy session, they may be a little more guarded, maybe a little more skeptical, a little more, well, I don't know you yet, but sure, I'll try it. So you add hypnotherapy in with your patients already? Yes. Got it. Okay. Yes. This isn't like a, hmm, should I book her for therapy or hypnotherapy? And then Well, you can. you can. You can. I would probably make it a two-hour session though because I'd want a f- probably 30 minutes to bring down any anxieties, worries, and fears, skepticism, mm-hmm. just so they get a little sense of who I am and that they're safe to go into a hypnotherapy session. Fascinating. I know that another hat you wear, and we'll get to the mother hat because that's a big one with four children, a death midwife, I believe you call it. Yes, I am. Can you talk to me about that? And I just, again, I, it's so interesting. Like, did the all the death in your life lead you to what 
you do now or I don't know, or do you do now? I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's like just very much a, a metaphysical, which came first, where you brought to this earth in some way because you are able more uh, elegantly, gracefully to deal with loss. And therefore, part of your calling is to help other people gracefully deal with it. You know what I mean? Right. I think, let me reflect on that. So I believe I have always had a spiritual side to myself that I only allowed to come forward and speak more freely about it as I've gotten older. I think the spiritual experiences I've had, which I can see things, I have a gift for seeing things. I have a gift for like, I'm a Reiki healer as well. And I really believe and science backs us up. Everything is frequency. Everything is energy. I don't believe this is me talking. (laughs) Everyone has their own beliefs. Um, Non-denominational here. Uh, I really believe that we just transform into another dimension after death, that Einstein even said it. I mean, that he didn't think this was it either, that energy continues on in some way. And that's why when, you know, you hear people who have had near-death experience, there's too many near-death experiences on this planet to deny it. Um, And people who, Brian Weiss or um, Anita, I'm going to say her name wrong, but she wrote... uh, Dying to Be Me, that mm-hmm. great book, and just these great stories. Anyway, death, I think I am comfortable with death, of course, because of everything I've been through. And I do the work I do out of the love of my late husband, Michael. Mm. I needed, I'm going to cry. <laughs> I needed okay. to transform your time. That profound loss in my life. And to bring something good into the world for others to heal. And with every person that I touch and work with, that is always my hope. And that's where I come from. A place of wanting to bring more ease into their suffering. Hmm. Because they come to me suffering. And I want to help them see that they don't need to always be in that state and it's not forever Mm. that it will soften and that my favorite quote is that death ends a life not a relationship Mm. and my relationship with michael continues through my work Mm. i just got full body chills when you said that and all the babies i've helped people mourn they're with me and they're the spirits and the light of love around me just empower me in a way to support my work and myself as a vessel to bring love and light into people's lives. Mm, thank you for opening up about that. Let's just touch briefly on motherhood for you. We can take a minute if you want. Deep breath. Take your time. <sighs> Yeah. It was beautiful. Yeah. I help people with um, their grief because, as we know, or I don't know, I don't know about you, Abby, but I mean, I know you 
gone through a lot too on, in different ways, but everybody's got something usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, uh, we never forget and we always let love. I mean, you've heard, you know, grief is love. It's so true. And it's been over, I will tell my age. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, it's been over 30 years since Michael died and uh, I, I, it can be like yesterday and sometimes it can seem so far away. And at my young age, I had him buried. I didn't know. I mean, now I probably would have chosen differently, but, uh, so I actually have a, I can go visit his grave, mm. which is so sacred to me, but, uh, I really help people realize the secondary losses around the primary loss yeah. and the secondary losses our loss of friends, family, community, people forget. They don't call you on the death anniversary or the wedding anniversaries or the even birthdays <laughs> of the deceased. Um, they, It's like out of sight, out of mind. And it's easy for people to, you know, you feel left behind in that way too. Mm. Would you like people now still to acknowledge Michael's birthday with that? Abs- a- absolutely. Mm. Or his death anniversary which is, which is thanksgiving you know Ugh. you know basically every year <sighs> yeah i would absolutely it's hey really... thinking about you yeah don't need to the best thing out there is yeah thinking don't about you respond. don't need to respond <laughs> yeah <laughs> should, should be a, a bumper sticker <laughs> totally her t-shirt that's really true for any phase of and, hard time anyone's going through i say that all the time as well yeah, yeah. and um the you know, there are some wonderful sites now people can go to, to, uh, sign up giving in kind is one. Yes. And, uh, I know the founders of that, of giving in kind, and it was built or came out of the love of their stillborn son or daughter. I'm sorry, excuse me, daughter. And it's just a great place for people to go to, to sign up, to do different tasks for grieving families or people in the hospital maybe with a terminal illness or any, any, for any reason, actually for any reason. But um, yeah, I I feel like all my work, like I did a a internship on the oncology ward at children's hospital. So I worked with children, either terminal or not terminal, but with cancer. My death midwifery work is really to help women come back around to that. So death midwifery is to hold sacred space for the dying and to comfort those around them and also explain the dying process to people so they're not afraid. Yeah. There's so much fear around death. So much fear around our own death, around the death of others, around being around dead bodies. Yes. And there's nothing to be afraid of. I just like to say that out loud. Uh, yeah. A dead body is not something to be scared of. That's someone you loved for years, let's say, or the, or the, even a, a deceased baby you, that was a much wanted and loved baby. There's no reason that you need to hide it or get rid of it as fast as possible. There's this misunderstanding that it's sacred to, and it's an honor actually to be with someone who's dying. So to go into a hospital and help someone who had a loss, maybe the 23 mark week mark, right? Nothing can be done except comfort care. Or even 24, but some parents say, you know, we don't want to go through the NICU experience. We're going to just hold our baby. Mm -hmm. I come in and I help them with that. And I help them to comfort and 
ask if they need this or that for that, you know, just remind about the basics. Um, or maybe I should, I don't, do you want me to explain basics? Basics meaning, uh, is there a blanket you'd like the baby to be wrapped in that's special? Do you want to put any outfits on the baby that you'd like? Do you want to read a book? Do you want to sit in a rocking chair? Do you want to mother and father this baby before you say a final mm-hmm. goodbye? So besides the footprints and the handprints and maybe calling in a bereavement photographer, but our phones are so good at pictures too. So, you know, so really just humanizing the experience. I feel like we do forget that those little babies are humans. Yeah. Right. Uh, Yeah. And also or helping a woman before she gives birth to a stillborn. Yes. So that she's not birthing in so much fear. Um, Birthing in fear in general anyway, will slow down the process. Mm. And also the more information you can give someone, the more you mitigate trauma. Huge point. And I've been trying to push this message to the hospital and hospitals Mm. and all the speaking engagements that I do do to inform, 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 inform. Don't be afraid to. And that's, I'm also a licensed funeral director so that I can act as an intermediary in the hospital and let people know they can have a home funeral. So I have officiated several home funerals for infants. And that is so beautiful. And that's not a choice the hospital gives. So it's, do you want burial or cremation? Right. Or would you like to take your baby home for a couple of days and have a beautiful ceremony at home Mm. with friends and family? And it and it's so beautiful. It's just so beautiful to do that. So yeah, I I there are many facets obviously in my work. And as I've continued in my work, I really don't know too many other people that are doing this kind of hands-on really beautiful work. Work, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was gonna ask you some motherhood questions, but I feel like you've given us so much to process already. Let's just like breathe it in and sit with it. What I ask usually in closing is if there's a phrase or a cliche or something that you live by, I feel like you've already given so many, even just the one of grief is love is something that must permeate through you constantly. Um, So that one, or is there anything else you can think of that you might want to share something that somebody said to you once that you really, that really resonated with you? Oh, wow. Um, Something maybe you say to your kids. Besides, I love you. Uh, <laughs> what more is there, right? Uh, I, I think the quote I gave earlier, just that death ends a life, not a relationship. Yes, that was, is, I also wrote that it's down. It's super important to remember you're not weird or anything for holding on to people's or loved ones' things, baby things. There's no rush. There's no fire. Like, slow down. Take your time. And really... When you make decisions, make sure you're making it from a place of like alignment, not because someone's telling you to, or you think you're supposed to quote unquote, or you feel embarrassed or ashamed of your grief, or you feel wrong. Nothing is wrong in grief, unless you want to harm yourself or others, of course, but there's nothing wrong. Like if you want to keep the baby's room, keep the baby's room. Like there's no, there's no rush in doing anything. Because you think it's weird or wrong. I love that. So death ends a life, but not a relationship. 
I love it. Dr. Ivy, thank you so much for being here. I have so much to process from this episode and we appreciate you and I love you. Thank you. I love you. (laughs) Thank you so much. You know, when we get offline with our podcast guests and they say to me, wow, I've never cried on a podcast before. I feel like I've done my job. So thank you, Dr. Ivy, for saying that to me the minute we ended. You are a wealth of knowledge and empathy and compassion and love. Please go and follow Dr. Ivy on Instagram. We will link out to where you can find her. Anybody that needs help coping with any of these losses in their life, she's clearly highly specialized to help you through and navigate and train. I have clients who see Dr. Ivy for fertility, for pregnancy loss, and she's just a warm and compassionate hug in the form of a doctor. So please remember to follow us on Instagram at Abby Feeder at Encircle Fertility at The Fertility Chick. And hey, happy new year. Can't wait to see you next week. <laughs>